just got into the boat and went back to the other side of Lake One, where a large gathered around him on the shore. Then the a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived when he saw Jesus. He fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. Excellent. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she got no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She'd heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the homes of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them, and he said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha Koum, which means, little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to go give her something to eat. Let's thank these folks for doing a great job reading. Well done, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Actually, give it to Dar. Thank you. So what I want to do with you is um, take a stroll through this story again. There is so much here. This, this is such an incredibly dense text, believe it or not. And I just want to point some things out. And then after I'm done pointing some things out and asking some questions of us, then I want to open it to you, uh, because maybe some of you um, have some insights that I don't have. And maybe the Spirit of God really is present. And there's something here that's bubbling in you for you to say, either an insight in the text or how this whole thing has messed with you. 
uh, that could be exactly what somebody else needs to hear today. So that's, that's where we're going. So the way this story starts is Jesus is in a boat, and he's coming from somewhere back to Israel. So I want you to think Lake Tahoe. Uh, Jesus and the boys have been over at Sandpoint Harbor on the Nevada side. No need to brag, man. He's going to be there next weekend. All right. <laughs> so I want you to imagine Jesus was at Sandpoint Harbor, a beautiful spot, uh, but it's not California. It's Nevada, and we all know what that means. I don't know what that means, but he's over there, and uh, it's foreign territory. Uh, and in the original text, he's across the Sea of Galilee in foreign territory, non-Jewish territory. He comes across this guy uh, who has serious mental uh, disorder. He's naked, running around a cemetery, freaking everybody out, and Jesus heals him. And that kind of display of power freaked everybody out, so much so that they asked him to leave. <laughs> Isn't that something? They didn't want him around because it was too much. And so he and the disciples got back in the boat, made their way back probably to Capernaum. Uh, that was a large coastal town on the Sea of Galilee. And as soon as he gets out of the boat, this guy named Jairus uh, finds him. Now, Jairus was one of the leaders of the synagogue. If you are a leader of the synagogue at that time in that space, especially with Roman occupation, you are a big deal. You carry a lot of weight in the community. People look up to you uh, to bring the people of faith together, to teach, to be a support. Jairus was such a big deal, in fact, that he didn't ever need to run anywhere to ask anybody anything. He could have asked somebody in his sphere, one of his minions, so to speak, uh, to go ask on his behalf, and he would know that it would probably be fulfilled, whatever he asked. But we don't see that here. We see the man himself. Something had happened to him that was so powerful, he didn't want to take any chances. And it was his daughter. His 12-year-old girl was dying, and he was desperate for help. So the guy who normally stood in his position and counted on his rank and authority chose to forego that, to swallow whatever pride might have been with that, and chose to go find this renegade Jewish guy named Jesus that some weird stuff was happening in him and the way he spoke, and especially in the way he healed. He decided he couldn't, he couldn't risk not asking Jesus for help. And I want you to understand, that is not a small thing. Uh, I remember uh, when uh, I was in Illinois for my first pastorate, and there were some members of my church, some young guys who were friends with some members of a Pentecostal church. Even today, this, is, this would be a remarkable story, but that many years ago, even more so, where you have Protestant churches, Baptists, Lutherans, Methodists, etc. And then you had Pentecostals. They had a very different orientation toward worship and all this stuff. And these couple of friends of mine who are members of my church, they went to, to like a healing service and, you know, were pretty blown away by it. And so they came to me and they were talking to me about it. And they invited me to go to a service as well at the Pentecostal church. This was a, a line you really didn't cross much. Uh, even, even still today, there's a little bit of raised eyebrows if that would happen, because the theological interpretation is quite different. And so I decided to go, and it caused quite a stir among my colleagues, because what was I doing 
from First Baptist Church choosing to go to a healing service at the United Pentecostal Church. That never happened. Not only uh, did it cause a stir, but the pastor of the United Pentecostal Church, he freaked out that I was there and prayed over me with his elders and everybody else like never before hoping that I would receive the gift of tongues, <laughs> because what a feather in his cap that would be. Well, that's not my gift. I've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in my life for sure many times, but never in speaking in tongues. And so it didn't happen then. But, but for me to even cross that line was a dangerous move because of what people might think in the church and in the community. It's hard to imagine. But I was like, well, if God's working over there, let's go check it out. I remember when I was a pastor here, it was in my first few months, and uh, this uh, group of Tibetan monks were doing a tour uh, around California, and I, you may even remember this, and I got a call Sunday morning wondering if the Tibetan monks could come and say a greeting, you know, to our church, and I was like, yes, and so they came. I had like 30 minutes notice, and so I go around and tell people, be nice, be nice, be nice, you know. <laughs> and so they come and they come to our service and they do a chant for us of blessing kind of a thing. And it's, you know, in their language, so we don't know what they're saying, but it, it, it was a blessing and trust that it was a nice blessing and all that. And before they left, uh, I asked them to stay and our church sang a song back to them, a favorite hymn of ours, just as a blessing, you know, uh, in return. And then they left to go on to whatever they were doing the rest of the day. They were on a very tight schedule. Like the next day, I got a call from a very concerned church member. What was I thinking? Bringing Satan's black belts into, <laughs> into our church. <laughs> That's what I want you to think about here with Jairus going to meet with Jesus. Jesus was an outlier. He was known for really different interpretation of Scripture. And he was known for having a healing power about him. He was dangerous. And yet Jairus chose to take the risk. We don't think about it. We think there's no risk in Jesus. Not for Jairus. Not at that time. This was a major risk. And when people knew about Jairus' daughter, which they did because he was like a celebrity to them, and they knew his daughter was not well, and then they see Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, making a beeline for Jesus to ask for help, which is essentially a form of prayer. Can you imagine the buzz? They're like, what is happening here? Because he probably hadn't made it any kind of an official way in on Jesus yet. And it made me wonder, do I, do I ever have any pride in me that restricts me or any fear in me that restricts me from going to God in prayer for whatever might that be? And I wonder if you do too. I wonder if that's a human experience kind of thing. Sometimes it comes off like, oh, I don't want to bother God with this one. This is, let, let them part some seas somewhere. This is just my minor little thing. But, you know, I think, I think when push comes to shove and we face something really tragic and horrible, even if we can't get ourselves on our knees to pray, I think our bodies do it for us. Uh, Paul describes this to the Corinthian church. 
sometimes we groan with sighs too deep for words, and the Spirit uses that to pray on our behalf. You ever done one of those before? I bet you have, and I bet you will, because that's the human experience. So he gets there, he says this to Jesus, and gratefully, Jesus says, let's go. And I just want to have you imagine, you know, a crowd of people around Jesus. It's, it's kind of a throng now. People are very curious what, what's going to happen. And I just want you to imagine uh, that perhaps Jairus' home is just a couple hundred yards away. They're not far. They're just moments away. Healing is moments away from Jairus' home where his daughter is lying sick on a bed, dying. They're that close. And just as they're going, Jesus stops because he senses something has happened. This woman, who had been suffering from bleeding for 12 years, as long as that little girl has been alive, she has been bleeding nonstop. All of her money has been blown on medical care, which did not help her one bit. Because of her condition, there were Levitical codes, religious rules that restricted her from being in the synagogue with other believers. She was untouchable, ostracized. People felt sorry for her, wondered what did she ever do for God to cause that or for God not to heal her all these years. She was dirt poor. She got only charity to live on, and she was looked down upon uh, as somebody who even God had somehow scorned. She heard that Jesus was coming through. She saw what was going on, and she decided to take a major risk. Now, some of us, we might think about this woman, and we might think to ourselves, she didn't have anything to lose. I mean, if you got nothing to lose, why not just go for it? Well, I'll tell you why you don't go for it. If you've been suffering for 12 years, you're exhausted. You got nothing left in the bank, literally, emotionally, in every way possible. You know how much, you know how much energy it would require for her to, to muster up that much courage to just give it a shot? You know, you know how many times she has been disappointed in her life? trying to find resolve on this, to do it one more time. Oh, it's like everything she has to do this one more time. We got to remember that because when we come across people who've been suffering from who knows what for a long period of time, it could be an unhealthy relationship that is really toxic. And we just want to say from the sidelines, what's the deal? Just leave where they have emotional trauma that they're struggling to get through. And we're like, well, just go to a different counselor. Or they're struggling with addiction. We're like, man, when are you just going to go back to another program? We got to remember, this is exhausting. And for them to take one more step is just like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can risk it again to only be disappointed again. And we're not exactly sure what her belief system was on this. It could go one or two ways. If she was really well-versed or somebody versed her really well in ancient Jewish scriptures, then she, re she might remember this passage from an Old Testament prophet that talked about the anointed one and that there would be healing in his wings. 
And if you translate the word for wings, you find out that it's the same word that is used for the, for the fringe of a robe. If you can imagine what the, what the edges of wings look like, fringe of robe. And so uh, the idea was, is that when the Messiah would come, there would be healing in the fringe of his robe. And so maybe from her Jewish faith and background, she's thinking, all I got to do is get to the fringe. If he's really it, there will be healing right there. Or maybe it was a little mixture of also some non-Jewish thinking, which believed that if you were a magician, you kind of had this magical energy all around you that kind of flowed and everything around you. So it really, it was, uh, if Jesus was this magician, which he was known to be, then maybe it's just sort of fallen over into his robe. And all I got to do is just touch the robe because the robe now is magic. There's a, there's a part of the story in the book of Acts where one of the disciples shadows touch somebody and the shadow itself caused healing. That's a nod to this non-Jewish way of understanding things. We don't know what went through her mind, but she had enough reason to believe that it was worth a shot and mustered enough energy to just go for it. We don't know what it looked like. She probably was keeping her head down, didn't want to be seen because if she's seen, then people are going to make a stink about that. She might never get there. So somehow, some way, she finally makes the reach and touches his robe, and lo and behold, she knows immediately that she has been healed. And she's like, yes, I can't believe it. Relief. And then there's this pause where Jesus stops everything and says, wait a minute, somebody touched my robe. And at that point, can you just imagine what's going through her mind? Oh, no. I had it for five seconds, and it's going to be taken away. It's going to be worse. I'm going to be ostracized now by Jesus in front of all these people who already think so little of me anyway. Who touched my robe? She's thinking about this in her agony. There's somebody else who's in agony at this point. Jairus. Jairus is thinking, we're 200 yards from home. My daughter is dying. 200 yards. Don't stop. We're almost there. And he stops. And he says, who touched my robe? And Jairus is thinking, that's a stupid question. Just like all the disciples. He's like, who cares? Let's just keep moving. And Jesus doesn't move. And so Jairus, Jairus is, is left in this tension, this, this pause, this space. What are you going to do with this pause? He's got to be internally coming unglued. You could see it on his face. He knows who this woman is. He's tried to help her for years. Nothing is helping. God doesn't, for whatever reason, obviously want to help this woman. Let's move on. He's thinking about the one that's going to be lost, not the one who's already lost. His focus is fully on the one who needs to be saved and not on the one in front of her who just received salvation. He is stuck in the middle of this tension of, I want what I need and I don't know what to do. I can't believe we're stopping. Time is of the essence. Keep your mouth shut. Let's just keep marching. He's stuck in this angst. And he can't do anything about it. She answers. It was me. 
I'd heard somewhere, if I just touch the fringe of your robe, this might happen. It, it, I understand. I'm sorry. I should have asked or something. And what does he say to her? <laughs> Daughter. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. <laughs> Daughter. I mean, daughter. Can you imagine how long it had been since she'd heard that word daughter? Very likely her parents were long dead. Nobody calls her daughter. Nobody's treated her with that kind of kindness for 12 years. And now this one who is anointed by God, the one who now is the authority standing right in front of her. How does he address her? Doesn't rebuke her, doesn't chastise her, instead calls her daughter. You know, I have a hunch that at that moment, the woman probably faded to black. And the only thing she could think about as she was weeping was, he just called me daughter. He values me. He's loving me. And even if the bleeding started again, I think she would have known she'd been healed. Daughter. Oh. And I wonder what that did to Jairus. He probably didn't have ears to think about it at that moment because he's just thinking about his daughter who needs to be seen right now. So they continue, and Jesus changes the, the stage a little bit. Uh, he says to the crowd, I don't want all of you with us. I need some privacy. And so let me go with the parents and just a few disciples, and we'll go from here. He gets to the house, and of course, you've, you've heard, you know, we, we read the story that Jesus has heard before, and so to Jairus, that the daughter is already dead. How are you feeling now if you're Jairus? Aren't you frustrated? You're like, oh, ah, oh. if we wouldn't have spent this time with this thing, which could have waited, we could have already been there and saved all this. But Jesus gives them encouragement. Just have faith. It takes just a handful now. They get to the house. There's a crowd around there too. Uh, tells them, uh, get outside of the house. I just want the parents and a few disciples. And they're there in the room. Can you imagine the scene? Now we have the mom there. And we have the mom who is just beside herself with grief, doesn't know what happened. You see, you can kind of see the, the frustration on Jairus's face. He can't say this right now to his wife. He'll say it maybe later and just talk about his frustration with this Jesus who waited too long, who wasn't there in the way that he wanted him to be there. It's this horrible pause moment. And isn't it a gift that Jesus chose uh, to excuse everybody else except for uh, the parents and a few disciples. I remember uh, when my son was born, he was born premature, six weeks premature. And we had to leave town to go to a children's hospital uh, for his safety. And because we didn't know anybody there, I was just a dad in the moment, you know, and was able to be fully present uh, and watch the birth of my son. And it was this exhilarating experience. And my wife apparently was fully present as well as she gave birth to my son. <laughs> I think she may have experienced it in a more profound level than I did. 
So that was great. Uh, my daughter was born two years later, but now it was in uh, the hospital in the little town where we served. And the nurses knew who I was. And a, a member of our congregation was in the room. And when my daughter was born, it was different. Because I had 10 sets of eyes looking at me, how am I going to respond? And I have to tell you, it took away from the experience. I just wanted to rejoice in the coming of my daughter into the world. And I did. But it was affected because other people were there just wanting to see how I responded. What a gift Jesus gave these parents of privacy. Sometimes we think more people in the room is more supportive. Well, I'm here to tell you, that's not really true. And Jesus knew it. So excuse them. And then he says this interesting thing in the text. They're just there alone. Uh, and there were a couple prophets, Elijah and Elisha, that were in a similar circumstances. And they went through some very interesting protocol in order to how to pull off this miracle. Um, really kind of strange things. But, but all Jesus did was maybe touch her and say, little girl, rise. Isn't that a curious thing? Isn't that a curious detail that we get from Mark's gospel? I mean, he could have, he didn't have to say that. He could have just kind of, you know, poked her <laughs> on the shoulder and maybe shaken her a little bit like, hey, anybody home? He didn't do that. Maybe slap her on the face a little bit. Maybe snap, snap his fingers, you know, in front of, on top of her face, you know, wake up, you know, anything like that. But he didn't say that. He said, little girl, rise. Why? Why would the gospel community, the Markin community, why, why would they want this to be the words that they remembered and passed on to us? Because rise is deeply Christian. Rise is our word. Rise is Easter. Rise communicates. There's death, but then there's life. There's hopelessness, but then there is hope. He uses this word so that every reader, after the fact, who knows the Christian story says, Yep, <laughs> that's Jesus. The power of resurrection is in his hands even right then. It's an incredibly powerful moment. Yeah, right. So he's just in this moment for us to see, says, get her something to eat. She's probably really hungry, which that makes sense. And I'm just thinking about this story, about what that had to be for, for all these involved, and especially after the fact as Jairus, who had to be a reflective, a reflective kind of a guy to be in his position to think things through, I wonder how much he, how many dots he connected. A woman who's suffering for 12 years from something that was keeping her from life, the same amount of years his precious daughter had lived her whole life. And now at 12 years, death was going to come. And I'm thinking, he's wondering, it's my daughter, it's my daughter, it's my daughter. All he can think of is exasperating. It's my daughter, Lord, please come save my daughter. She's dying. And then in reflection, he's thinking, that's what he said to that woman. Another woman, another daughter who was equally valued. And I just wondered with time, how did that change Jairus's, Jairus's vision of the world? He would no longer look at someone like that woman and think anything less than daughter. His eyes changed because of the grace of God.
Now, I do have one more thing to say, uh, and this may this is to speak into um, an issue that all of us have faced, which is when we pray for healing and healing doesn't happen, because I think we've probably all been there to some degree. And so this isn't written in the text, so if you want to nail me on heresy right now, I'm giving you a free shot. Now here's the word that I want for you, for, for you to hear, that this little girl who was healed by Jesus and the woman who bled for 12 years and was made whole finally in every possible way, they died. I don't know when, but they died which leaves us with this much bigger question. If they eventually died anyway, why did Jesus heal them both then? And that's a question for you to muse about yourself. And I'm wondering, how are you, Jairus, in this? In your pride to maybe not even pray for somebody who needs help? How are you able to overcome that for that? How are you like the bleeding woman, that daughter who mustered up enough courage and faith to believe and found restoration? How are you like Jesus who is in the moment with people regardless of who they seem to be? Are you equally present for a Jairus type with authority and title as you would be uh, the woman who is just suffering? How do you understand yourself as a child of God just like everybody else? And how does that affect the way you see the world and interact with it? So many questions, so much here. So many things to integrate into our lives and our faith. That's a rich story. And that's what I got. So I'm curious, what do you got? What's sticking with you? What do you see here? How's it messing with you? No, no pressure, but the early service hit it out of the park. So... You know, there's that. <laughs> what do you see? What are you thinking? What are you wondering about? You don't have to say anything. Fair enough. Let's spend a moment in silence. If you'd close your eyes, and here's what I'd like you to do as we center again. I'd like you to think about um, if you can identify one or two things that is just really striking you from this story. Can you identify one or two things? And I'd just like you to ask yourself here in the presence of God together, why, why do you think that thing has jumped out at you, those one or two things? Why, out of all the things, was that the thing? And as you sit with a little bit more, and now you've identified the thing or two that have popped up, and you've sort of wondered about why the thing may have popped up, I wonder, is it possible that the Spirit of God is inviting you to some sort of response to the exchange that has happened in you 
from the thing that has popped out to the why it's popped out, what, what response might God be inviting you to make? God, this is when your word, your written word, this thing we call sacred scripture, this is where it comes alive. This is what makes it alive, is as we engage this history remembered, this remarkable event, as we bring our full selves into it and invite you into the mix, we find out that it is alive and is speaking to us, and is guiding us. And it may be guiding a specific thing to each individual person today. And I thank you, God, that that is how you work. That while we can all see mega themes here and agree on those, this comes home to us. There's something here for us, an invitation. And I pray that we would be open to that invitation. And if we have courage enough today, whatever that invitation might be, that we would say yes. But if we don't have that kind of courage yet, I, I hope that we'll realize that an okay prayer to God today is also, I need a minute. I want to, but I need a minute. Don't give up on us, God. Just need a minute. Because I'm tired. And I'm afraid. I don't want to be disappointed. I need a minute. And if that's you today, you got a minute. You have time. The presence of God is with you. God enters into your pain with you. And when God enters with you into your life, he's not there to condemn you. He is there to inhabit it. And when God does, God seeks to transform it. God, we give you ourselves. We invite you to continue your work that we might be more fully well. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To end our service today, uh, I want to do what we've been doing, which is to recite together this uh, St. Patrick's breastplate. And, you know, for me, um, thinking about Jairus, and I'm Jairus uh, in this story because I'm, I'm a leader of a synagogue of sorts. Um, and I think we all, uh, I sometimes have struggled with how I see people and how I interpret people. And I love the last lines of this, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me, and I'm wondering uh, which line is particularly powerful for you. So let's stand together and recite this before we go our separate ways. Let's say it together. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, 
Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. God bless you. Thanks for coming today. Enjoy a beautiful weekend, and we'll see you next week. Have a good one.